90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you doing? Uh, wonderful as always. How are you doing, John? <laughs> oh, not too bad. And we're doing a lot of traveling, as I know many of our colleagues are. And uh, that kind yes. of inspired today's show topic. Uh, exactly. So talking about traveling, obviously we use a lot of maps when we're doing that. And that's what we're going to talk about. We talked about geological maps, which is what I'm focusing on this summer. But maps in general are pretty useful. And it's something we as humans have used for thousands of years. <laughs> but there's yes, a lot of problems with them. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And this is, you know, this is, I will preface the show with a warning that this is a wiki hole. So <laughs> you should be prepared to lose... Yeah, significant hours, probably after listening to the show. I know I did in uh, helping prepare it. Uh, oh, I did too. I couldn't even count the number of things that I Googled. How big is X continent? What if I projected it based on this? Um, it was really fun wiki hole, though. I will say that. Like, I think this is a really interesting topic because it's something fu so fundamental. Where do we live and what does it look like? Yeah, and... You know, maps, we generally think of an atlas or a map on a wall in a conference room that you stare at when you're in a boring meeting. <laughs> Never. <laughs> right? <laughs> but we really don't think about how that map actually came into being as a 2D entity, right? And that that's where all the problem comes in. <laughs> exactly. Um, I will say one of the things that, I mean, I, I don't think a lot of people think about this. I mean, we as geoscientists obviously think about it probably way more than most people do. Um, but this really, the problem with this, this hit me when I was on a plane once and I was flying to Scotland and I had a man beside me who was next to these girls who he was trying to impress. And you know how in the back of the airplane seats, they have the map and then like your travel, you know, your travel path, right? And right. so back of the airplane seat, 2D screen and so we're going from <laughs> so we're going from Chicago to Scotland and so it's a big arc right that's what it looks like the airplane is taking is a big arc and I remember the girl turning to the guy and complaining that wouldn't we get there so much faster if we just flew in a straight line <laughs> <laughs> well and depending on the map projection that could be true obviously it wasn't in this case <laughs> <laughs> no, it was really painful to me, but it also sort of, I mean, you know, obviously education failed her, but <laughs> I, it made me think a lot about, you know, how can we accurately represent this? And there are a lot, this is the wiki hole, a lot of different ways, and it turns out none of them are really all that accurate, but it's just which one do you like the best almost? <laughs> Yeah, and it really depends on the area and what you're trying to do. Exactly. So it turns out this show was big enough. This is going to be a two-parter <laughs> in an effort to not have an hour and a half long show. And hopefully uh, to curb our continual upward trend in episode length. Yes, yes. We're sorry about that, guys. That's not, it won't continue. <laughs> we have to plateau. So we're going to split today's topic up and talk about what problems there are in projecting a 3D ball that's lumpy 
onto a 2D piece of paper that is definitely not lumpy. And then next time, we'll talk about some of the specific projections. Right. And that's the one where there's so many different projections that you can take. But like John said, it's really like, what, what is, what's your point? What are you trying to get out of a map? And that's where all these different projections come into play is which one is the best suited for your particular use. Yeah, absolutely. So as a starter, I would say you should pull up the XKCD <laughs> comic, which is linked in the show notes, and that can give you a little idea of exactly what we're talking about because it shows a bunch of different map projections. And then, of course, Randall's uh, prediction about which map projection is your favorite, what that says about you. Uh, for example, the Mercator projection, it says, well, you're really not that into maps. <laughs> Which is sad because I bet, you know, if you asked anyone randomly, name some map projections, that's probably the first go-to. It's the first one I think of. I I think that if you ask any person that deals with maps a lot, they might say that just because that's the one that they've heard of. Mm -hmm. I think if you ask any person on the street randomly what map projection is (laughs) their favorite, they would say, what's a map projection? (laughs) Because you never learn about it in primary education, as far as I know. See, I remember talking about a few, but it was only like, here's what these are, and then you move on. I mean, with the existence of GIS now, and so many different fields incorporate GIS, it's it's kind of a big deal, because if you try to merge any two data sets together, this is a big deal <laughs> yes i cannot count the number of times when taing for field classes with geophysics data collection where you would see students collect some gps data and then collect some data with another instrument and try to plot them in some utility and say but that's not where i was you know that's that's off by half a mile or something like right so exactly and it's <laughs> I like talking about this too because it's the only acceptable usage in public of the word NAD over and over again, <laughs> which is, of course, <laughs> North American datum. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so the reason this is such a big problem is in the field of mathematics, projections have been solved, right? There's <laughs> a lot of theory on how you take any shape and project it into any you know, in-dimensional space. That's done. Right. But this is not a spherical chicken. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> In a vacuum. Um, exa- exactly. Um, as much as we like to assume that, when it comes right down to it, I mean, that's a big problem. I mean, the same thing when you're just making a simple topo map. You know, map distance and ground distance don't necessarily always match up. And so our lumpiness is what makes us unique and difficult. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, you know, initially you'd say, okay, well, you're a sphere, and then you say, no, it's not, it's an ellipsoid, and then you say, well, it's not not that great of an ellipsoid either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and e- each time you do that, you lose a level of precision and projecting this 3D volume onto the page. <laughs> so we're kind of a fat, short sphere that's kind of oblate. I mean, there's not even, yeah, there's not even a word for that best describes what we look like. In general, no. I think, I think it's. I mean, it's obviously the hardest when you're trying to map the entire Earth on a two D medium. I think we're we're pretty good at you know really small scale stuff, even though that has its own problems as well. Oh yeah, and I mean you can. There's different grid systems for different areas 
of the world where you can say, I'm working in this area, this is my primary field area, and I'm going to use a rectilinear grid laid down over this because it's going to give me a maximum error of some tiny amount that is acceptable in this area. And that's all you care about. And that's fantastic. Life is good. (laughs) That is the case. (laughs) Yes, that is so true. Um, That's why I make individual figures for my individual field areas instead of tying them all into one big one. (laughs) So I can just ignore, (laughs) ignore this awful 3D, 2D conversion problem. Well, and there's a clip from one of your favorite TV shows that's linked in the show notes, right? (laughs) It is. And when you first suggested this as a topic, it was the first thing I thought of. (laughs) Because I think this is a wonderful, like, example of sort of a non-scientist reaction to what the world really looks like. (laughs) So, of course, we're talking about the West Wing, and there's a great clip on map projections (laughs) where some organization that's like the... Society of Cartographers for Equal Rights or something yes. like that. Yes, <laughs> equal representation. Uh, <laughs> is coming in and showing different map projections and proposing that the standard map projection in textbooks be changed because it favors North American attitudes. Which is so true. You know, we are all about us. And then the uh, the press secretary in the show, they <laughs> they show this more accurate representation of the relative sizes of the continents. And she just sort of like throws down and says, what am I looking at? (laughs) (laughs) And it's, it's really great. I think people don't really know something as simple as what we, where we really live, what it looks like. Yeah. And so if you look at, well, there's a lot of properties that we're going to talk about. This is, you know, part one of the show is what properties you would want to preserve on a map. And the next time we'll actually talk about some of the maps that do it. But for example, I can tell you right now the mercator projection does not preserve area because if the classical example is you look at africa and greenland and on the mercator projection they look about the same size which of course in real life is absolutely ludicrous (laughs) uh yes exactly so greenland is not that big (laughs) no (laughs) not even close um it's kind of the first thing you see on a mercator projection um so you're losing that in that projection, there's no way these relative sizes are anywhere near what they really are. So aerial extent is totally gone. Yeah. So I guess we should go down the list here and then figure out what order we want to tackle this. In. <laughs> uh, there's area, shape, direction, conformality, distance, and scale. These are all map properties and uh, kind of what I'd written in the show notes was you can't get them all at once. And most of the time you can't even get one totally right. This is like in paleomagnetism, we have this quality checklist and it's 20 points long. And so you want you want the best paleomagnetic sample hits all 20 of these. And I think the most I've ever seen published is like eight, maybe six. So I feel like this is the same for maps. Absolutely. And... So area is one of those things that it's pretty intuitive. We just talked about it of is the relative size of the continents and the land masses equal on the map and equal in real life. And really, I don't think that's that important a lot of times when you're looking at maps. Really? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, most of the time when you're looking at a map, you're trying to get somewhere. And if you know the point that you're coming from and the point that you're getting trying to go to – 
the area isn't so important, but some of the things that we'll talk about later, like distance and bearing, maybe are. See, that's that's really funny because I guess ever since I was little, like I just used to like look at the atlas. Like it was, I'm that kind of nerd. I really love, <laughs> I really love maps and stuff. And so to me, like when I first saw something where it showed the relative areas of the different continents, I mean, like just going through this wiki hole, it, you know you can shove the U.S. into, like, a quarter of the size of Africa. And I remember, like, when I noticed that, that's what really blew my mind about how wrong the aerial extent is. But I guess when you say it that way, in terms of usefulness, yeah, you're probably not <laughs> – yeah, you're probably right. It's not very useful that I know that the U.K. can fit in, you know, the length of Texas and Oklahoma. It's an interesting well, but... topic. <laughs> <laughs> Well, but if I turn it around, though, and I say that now I'm in a classroom as a student, you know, learning geography in middle school, let's say, I am not trying to fly from Chicago to Scotland. <laughs> That's then true. The area might be more important. Yeah, that is true. That is true. So again, it's going to be depending on what you want out of your map, I guess. Yeah. And, well, so then distance... Oh, this is where things can get interesting uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> or start to get interesting. I want to talk about conformality because I think you made that word up. <laughs> I, I didn't. So <laughs> we'll get to conformality. Okay, fine. We'll wait. <laughs> it, I would say it's the least intuitive. Uh, yeah, clearly, because I think you made it up. But back to distance, because you're right. That's probably what everyone cares about in a map. How far is X to X? That's certainly got to be one of the highest Google searches, right? Like, how far till I get to, you know, this city from my city or something? Right. And so distance still is not necessarily what you would think when you see an equidistant map. An equidistant map just guarantees that the distance from the center of the projection to all points on the map is correct. <laughs> so, and it makes sense why that's the case when you think about taking the 2D and, or the, well, the, yeah, the 2D map and trying to wrap it around a globe. It kind of depends on where the 2D map centered around. Oh, right, exactly. And I guess as long as it's centered around me, I don't care, but... <laughs> <laughs> I guess Are you saying the world revolves around you, Shannon? Well, obviously we knew that. <laughs> But um, yeah, I guess if you're not anywhere near that, you're being underrepresented, which is what's so funny about sort of that West Wing clip. And that's what they they kind of hint at. You know, there's a lot of a lot of places that are kind of underrepresented because it's so far away from us in North America that we don't even think about it. So it's an interesting concept. But so what's the answer here? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, there there is no great answer for it. Like I said, you can't you can't get everything, and most of the time, you can't even get exactly what you want. Um, <laughs> this came up a lot in my class this semester, actually, um, when we talk about topo maps, because you have a topo map in front of you, and usually we use these seven and a half by seven and a half minute quadrangle maps, and so you know you've got a scale on it, and so I'll ask, you know, how far is it from this place to this place? And they're like, oh, well, that's not bad. That's a quarter of a mile. And then we go out into the field, and they realize when they <laughs> measured that quarter of a mile with their ruler, that didn't take into account the 500-foot cliff face, you know? And so walking that quarter of a mile actually out on the surface of the earth is nothing like what they imagined it to be just looking at the map. 
And I think it actually messed with a lot of kids' time management skills because, you know, they're like, oh, I can cover that half mile really easy. Oh, really? Because right. it's up and down and up and down. <laughs> and that half mile turned into, you know, a three-hour walk. So Right. That, yes. All those, what looked like a thick black blend, that was really, you know, contour lines, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that can be a problem. And then... There are also things of just distorting not only distance, but distorting direction. If you're a sailor, <laughs> it's pretty important to you that a map, say, has a constant bearing. Uh, so if you draw a line, then you're going to sail to the same compass heading to stay on that line or not. Uh, right. Now, that would be, that's a huge thing, <laughs> right? I mean, with GPSs, you'd probably be aware of that. But I mean, everything happened with a pen and paper, and if that wasn't correct well then there goes the whole point of what you were doing <laughs> right well and we talked about on you know the timekeeping episode even that they would have multiple hourglasses and other timekeeping devices to try to figure out where they were on the map and do astronomy at night to help correct their position on the map based on their map <laughs> exactly the map that's supposed to get you there which isn't working in the first place <laughs> Well, and in fact, the car talk guys years ago <laughs> had a puzzler about uh, pirates and them losing an eye. And they said it was because they apparently commonly burned their eye while doing sun sightings. <gasps> You're kidding. <laughs> this is from car talk. But <laughs> so it's 100% true. <laughs> yes, it, it is unencumbered by the thought process. Oh, yes, yes. And who would have thought? I would have thought it was from, you know their hook hands or something but yeah <laughs> that makes more sense <laughs> but so yeah so that's important and then you just talked about scale a little bit uh where in some map projections the scaling relation actually isn't the same based on or depending on where you are on the map uh, right yeah so it's like that centering thing you know if you're in the center of the map it's different than if you're trying to figure out something along the edges of the map and therefore distorted <laughs> Well, and you can think about a lot of these properties uh, when I was trying to write these notes up as different lenses on a camera. Like think of taking hmm. a picture of the same scene with a telephoto lens versus a 55 millimeter lens versus a wide angle lens. Oh, that's kind of cool. You get different amounts of distortion. Depending on where you are in the picture. Right. Huh. I mean, okay. and with a wide angle lens, you can see your shoes. Right. Uh, <laughs> and you're taking the picture. <laughs> exactly. And there are mathematical corrections to apply to warp the pictures back to whatever you want, just like we can do with the surface of the earth and maps. Right. Right. All right. So now, now is your favorite, the one that you think I made up. <laughs> Conformality. <laughs> okay. So there's so. a link in the show notes <laughs> if you want to uh, look at some pictures to help with what we're talking about. <laughs> Um, I found one of these on my wiki hole journey as well before I even got down the show notes when I saw the word conformality because I really thought you made it up. <laughs> so so yeah. conformality means that in any direction at any point on the map, scale is the same, which totally doesn't seem like it's going to mean anything. Uh, no. No, it doesn't. So when you say this, every direction is identical. So you think of a globe and you think of, you know, the longitude lines getting closer together at the top and further apart at the equator, but that's not what this map is going to do. 
Right. This map, it, well, it guarantees that the parallels and meridians, so lines of latitude and longitude, are always at right angles. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So to help with this, you know, think of a tennis ball or a basketball. Actually, a basketball probably wouldn't be a bad example because it has the lines already on it for you. You don't have to draw and deface, you know, anybody's, <laughs> yes. anybody's sports equipment. But if you think about the Earth and draw lines of latitude and longitude on it, like Shannon just said, they have to get, you know, the lines of longitude have to get closer together at the poles because eventually they're all meeting at the North Pole and South Pole. Right. And further apart as you get towards the equator, right? And so as I picture this, I figure that, like, at a small scale, this is fine. Like, it's going to look um, like what I would imagine it to look like because I feel like small scale maps are kind of do that anyway because you want your shapes to be correct. But on the large scale, it gets a little weird looking. <laughs> like when you're looking at, like on the link on the show notes, there's a link to a Lambert conformal conical projection. And so the center looks pretty good. But then as you get further away, stuff gets really shape distorted to preserve that equal distance in any direction thing. Yeah. And so our friend, the Mercator, is also... <laughs> Uh, a conformal map. <laughs> yes. And there's a link in the show notes, uh, the page that Shannon is looking at, actually. And I'll link this specific map in as well. It shows the U.S. Uh, with three different projections, one that's completely unprojected, latitude and longitude, one that's Mercator, and one that's Lambert-Conic conformal of, of just the U.S. And even that small of an area, I mean, Florida shifts by a significant amount. Yes, Right, exactly. Well, you know, I only care about the central part of the U.S., which, since we're at the center of this map, it doesn't matter. <laughs> no distortion <Right>. at all. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, see, this is, it's, this is already messing with me, because then you start to wonder, well, what does it really look like? <laughs> and so then I just go to well, satellite pictures. <laughs> well, and you're also looking at it, and you say, okay, if you're in central Oklahoma, and you drive straight east until you reach the coast, what state will you be in? The answer could change based on yes, if you think that's straight I'm east. just looking at this. <laughs> that just freaked me out, John. Now I'm going to have to get on I-40 and see what happens. <laughs> Granted, the answer in real life won't change, right? But it will, depending if you thought that straight east was just drawing a right angle on the map, then if you're you, just you drawing a line where you think. Uh, exactly. I think that would be an excellent thing to do in a K through 12 geography class <laughs> to illustrate this point. It's oh, just absolutely. to pass out one of these maps in different projections and see how many different answers you can get based on the different map projections. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And also, too, I mean, if you think about it, you don't really see a compass rose on a world map. A lot of times, depending on <laughs> what the projection is, there's a reason for that. That's true. <laughs> Unless it's at the center of the map, and then it works for that small area that it's covering up. <laughs> yeah, that's that's really true. So, I mean, normally you see lines of latitude and longitude, because that makes a lot more sense. Because right. as, you'll, as you'll see, the latitude lines bend depending on the projection as you longitude. Right. So, so yes, this is a this is a really good way to confuse 
where you think things are in the world in relation to each other, the size of things, how to get to things. Uh, and how to make sure you have conformable things. <laughs> right. And this is where the projections start to come in, is something to satisfy whatever the best, you know, whatever the one thing that you want. What's your number one, you know, like you're buying a house. What's your number one thing you can't live without? <laughs> and so then you can pick a projection based on these different things. You know, what do you want to do? Do you want to preserve distance? Do you want to preserve shape? Um, and there's a map for that. <laughs> right. Yeah, I see what you did there. There's, there's a map <laughs> for that. I, I like it. Uh, <laughs> I, I was waiting, but thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So this is where it gets a little, or can get mathematical. You can go a little bit more theory-wise if you want. Of You have to no. have something <laughs> that you're going to wrap your 2D projection around to try to restore some semblance of the 3D world. And so that's why <laughs> Shannon mentioned a Lambert conic conformal map. Uh, so there are different classes of projections and they're cylindrical, conic, azimuthal, and of course, other. <laughs> I love it. Other. Um, so bumpy sort of sphere, not really ellipsoid that we really are. <laughs> it doesn't right. exist. Well, it kind of does because um, there's this thing that my son keeps picking out at the science museum, and it's like a little round pillow of the earth. <laughs> and so it's a, it's a map, you know, projected onto this little tiny pillow, and it's kind of bumpy and gross, like the earth really is shaped. I'll have to see what kind yeah. of projection that is on there. <laughs> yeah, you should look at the relative sizes and, yeah, you know, this, this is or isn't right. <laughs> I could just see him. No, honey, mommy needs your toy for, for real science. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Maybe so, it's a totally conformable map. Go ahead. <laughs> well, so this is where, you know, you take, you can think of taking a map and wrapping it around a cylinder like the map tube, except right. maybe a big one. <laughs> right. And, well, that's cylindrical projection, uh, as it turns <laughs> out. And then as you would imagine, if you have a cone and map, uh, wrap a piece of paper around that, you can see how you might start preserving some of the properties of uh, longitude lines getting closer together as you approach the pole, right? Because right. you have a continually changing radius. Exactly. Uh, where you get into the other category. <laughs> well, and of course, azimuthal is more of a, a polar plot, which mm -hmm. if you're working in polar regions is fantastic. Right. Um, also... Compass Rose on Antarctica. <laughs> Confusing. <laughs> so true. Um, I think most. I think most like traveling in Antarctica must be like over that way, <laughs> as opposed to east of here. <laughs> I you know a lot of the uh, the folks that do polar work here always hold their hand up with their oh, thumb the outstretched. Oh, the shape of Antarctica. <laughs> because it's the shape of Antarctica, and you point on your hand it's like the michigan mitten or even oklahoma we do that a lot too where we just stick our our index finger out and i've had entire geology classes taught especially on field trips with your little handheld oklahoma and pointing out where you are that's brilliant okay yeah so antarctica oklahoma <laughs> tennessee uh 
anywhere like that, you're in good shape. California might be a little difficult. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. And, Florida. you know, the, the UP is also not included in that little mitten map of Michigan. So. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but we won't go there. <laughs> right. But so these other projections are ones that uh, can really get messy because you can apply some kind of rule. Like you can say, I always want rectangular meridians, but everything else is unconstrained. Or <laughs> uh, you can center it. There's there's some that are like pseudo cylindrical. Uh, yeah, that was one that I liked too. <laughs> and so they, they have hunks missing, but if you were to wrap it around a tennis ball, then you, know, exactly. you actually get pretty close. I liked reading the thing that said, you know, think of an orange and what we're trying to do is essentially, you know, if you peel an orange and try to keep it in one piece, there's going to be a lot of tears and chunks missing from it. And so you're flattening down that that orange peel, and that's essentially what we're doing with maps. Yeah. And this is another situation of a while back, I think it was even the title line of the episode of I Need a Holodeck. Uh, <laughs> This is another situation where 3D projections uh, could be really useful, and that's why, you know, the globe has been such a successful <laughs> teaching tool. Right, exactly. Um, and, like, we have a globe in our college classroom, you know, this isn't above this, and I use it nearly every time I start talking. It's just so easy to grab and show people where stuff is, and it's amazing how few students have even looked at or studied a globe, too. To understand just relatively where we are. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I mean, I remember when I was uh, young and watching, you know, Bill Nye after school, and he would pull out a globe and stick toothpicks on it at different latitudes and have a flashlight for the sun and rotate the globe and start talking about right. the shadows that are cast. In. And that's the only way to visualize that. You can't do that with a map. Mm -hmm. There's just right. no way. <laughs> You're right. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, no matter how good your map or how many of these things it satisfies, it's not the same thing. So, which is what's so neat about, I mean, Google Earth is pretty awesome, obviously. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't right. love Google Earth? And it's still, it's still a 2D projection, but it makes it feel like it's not. And I think, you know, it's certainly fun to look at because as you zoom in you start to see these things that get distorted and all these different map properties and how they change depending on what you're looking at yeah and also too you generally have to be at least somewhat considerate unless you're at a cartographer's conference of <laughs> you know if you go up and show a damaxian map projection which is one of these <laughs> really disconnected polyhedral maps nobody is going to have a clue where to look no. because you know <laughs> south america is turned on its side in the right uh third of the map oh uh, yes <laughs> uh yes exactly um the waterman butterfly again that was another one <laughs> was super mm -hmm. super cool um you just it's not something most people are familiar with <laughs> And so next time we'll talk about more of these projections. Uh, we're not going to talk about all of them because I found over 60 different recognized projections. <laughs> one a minute. We can do one a minute. <laughs> yeah, one a minute for an hour show. Uh, right, some of these exactly. I don't know if it would take a minute. You just look at it and you say, what? And <laughs> uh, Especially yes. the ones that are retro-asimuthal. Uh, oh, that's... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
yeah, you get into some sticky stuff. Um, I always thought that it was it was really neat. Like I really actually liked doing a lot of the math that we wound up doing all through our undergraduates, you know, when we go into, you know, sort of radial stuff and trying to actually work the math of a sphere. It's such a different mindset to me that you have to get into. Yeah. And, you know, you have to use, well, a lot of the rules change. It's like going into the <laughs> yeah. imaginary plane. I mean, it's spherical trigonometry now. Yes, exactly. Uh, exactly. It's, I think it's a really cool mind exercise that you should have to go through just to sort of understand the world around you. <laughs> well, and if you're, if you're really interested in projections, maybe not so much maps, or <laughs> if this doesn't make quite so much sense, uh, you should check out the book Flatland. Oh, mm-hmm. yes, that's a good one. <laughs> so, and, you know, the premise of Flatland is it's a land of two-dimensional beings, and all of a sudden a three-dimensional object shows up. So say a sphere is just a series of circles of changing size as it descends into a 2D flatland. And the first little bit of the book is a little hard to get through because it's all about yes. how the shapes, the creatures can figure out what shape other creatures are because they only have two dimensions to work in. Uh, but once you get past that and you have kind of those base rules established for living in flatland, it gets really interesting. Uh-huh. No, that's um, that's a really cool book. And it's a quick read, too. Absolutely. Uh, have you seen the movie? I haven't. I didn't know there was a movie. Apparently it is, and I've heard that it at least was on Netflix, so I'm going to try to find it. Even if it's not on Netflix, oh. it might be worth ordering. Oh, yeah, me too. That's uh, that's really neat. Um, These things that sort of challenge – Maps is sort of one of these things that I feel like really challenges some of these assumptions that you go forward with in life all the time. And I really like to take a minute to just, like, look at these different projections and things because I think it makes you – think about the world you live in and think how you take all this stuff for granted and like that America is not actually very large. <laughs> right. So I think that's probably where we should cut it and then leave everyone hanging in suspense <laughs> to hear about our favorite map projections next time. I, yes. I, I dangled the words waterman butterfly out there for everyone and I'm just going to let that hang there. <laughs> <laughs> so that means it's teaser. time for everybody's favorite segment of the show Yay! fun paper friday this is an excellent one too <laughs> you truly <laughs> outdid yourself john on this on this find <laughs> so this paper is called that's what she said double entendre identification I love it so much. <laughs> and we are going to keep the show's clean tag, but this is a paper that is well worth taking a look at because it actually examines how complex it is to interpret uh, our speech patterns, our humor patterns, and double entendre. And can you teach a computer algorithm to recognize it and appropriately respond. I can't keep it together. This is so great. I just think like of these of these people like getting bet. I bet you can't get the words. That's what she said into a paper title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
And sure enough, they did. <laughs> and it's really interesting. Um, but it's a really interesting usage of, you know, trying to teach computers, which is scary in general. Um, trying to teach them humor and how to recognize these sort of things, which if you try to think about saying those words without any inflections at all and no voice inflections, that's a hard thing to do. Yeah. So machine learning is what they use, as we mentioned, and that's a whole field of research in itself, right, where you're trying to make an algorithm that can adapt itself by learning on training cases where you say, in this case, here's a phrase, and then you tell the algorithm it would or would not be appropriate to say that's what she said after this case. <laughs> and you can feed it some a priori information as well, you know, a dictionary of common words that would be used in double entendre, for example. Okay. And then you train it on all these examples, and then you just start feeding it uh, new data and see what it says, whether it, you should say that's what she said or not. And it's a really hard problem, and they call it the TWSS problem. <laughs> right. And the um is sort of the novel approach that they're are outlining is called deviant, which is also fantastic. The double entendre via noun transfer. So it's applying like, you know, metaphor identification techniques using this to solve this TWSS problem. <laughs> yeah, so and I know in the acknowledgments they even uh they even acknowledged somebody for helping come up with the name yeah, Deviant I love it. I love it. for this code. <laughs> All right, so they used a support vector machine, which is just you know a fancy type of neural network, uh, from my understanding of these things anyway, to do this. <laughs> and a big dictionary of words and training sentences, uh, which apparently there are lots of on the internet. <laughs> Uh, right, exactly, because in order to solve this problem, they had to teach the computers a lot of sexually explicit sort of nouns that it can identify. Yes. <laughs> and... <laughs> Which had to be an uncomfortable talk to give. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think this is also, you know, the only time that textsfromlastnight.com could be cited <laughs> in an academic paper. <laughs> Um, that was also a, a big time suck. <laughs> <laughs> so they trained this algorithm, and it turns out uh, they got a significant improvement on some of the other algorithms that have been tried in the past. And this is a complex language problem. If you can solve this, you can solve a lot of more complex language problems, right? Uh, right. So this is one of those things that, you know, you think people are wasting their time doing in science, but it obviously is a big deal because without you know, all these things that make language language, not just conveying information, but these subtleties. This is one of these ways that you can sort of teach machines to understand these subtleties, which just like John just said, that's a big deal in solving other problems. It's becoming more and more important as we have things like the Amazon Echo and all of these things in our houses that and Siri that are trying to listen to what we're saying and then take some action based on it, be that to order something or turn on lights or give you directions to somewhere. Uh, they need to be able to understand your intention. Uh, and that's a hard thing to do sometimes. Um, I don't want anything listening to me 
in my house. But yes, <laughs> that is the way we're going, isn't it? <laughs> so another thing they pointed out in this paper, which I thought was really important, was how false positives, false negatives, etc., were of differing importance in social situations. For example, if somebody said something that you could follow up by, that's what she said, and you didn't say it, that's not a huge social consequence for you. But if they say something that you should not say it after, and you say it, there could be a large social consequence there. Ha, that's so true. <laughs> One that I probably uh, <laughs> probably had happened to me several occasions. Right. And I mean, so you want to be careful, especially if you're going to use this algorithm to say, uh, mark things as spam on a social media site. You want to err on the side of caution. You do not want to mark things that are not spam as spam. Uh, you would rather let a few of those get through. And that could have serious implications if you're the one that's in charge of coding this stuff and <laughs> you let this thing slip through. Just like they said, you know, that could have serious consequences. And so you want to make sure that your algorithm is doing what it's supposed to, even with all the nuances of people's talking. Well, and, you know, this is a, it's a classic example of computer scientists or scientists in general, but computer scientists seem to be especially good at this, at taking a real world, very serious problem and breaking it down to an example that's fun to work on and that captures all of the complexities of the problem that they want to actually solve. Which is really cool because I don't ever think of, you know, I think of computers not dealing with this level of complexity. I mean, it's obviously way above my head, but a double entendre, <laughs> it, it seems like a really, a really funny thing that has all these actual like real world, real world implications. But it also seems like this stuff is just sort of just becoming more and more explored like this paper certainly isn't anything that says you know we've mastered this but it's a good start well yeah well in neural networks machine learning itself is a really tricky thing i've done a little bit of work with it in the past and you know there's a classic story of uh, they were trying to train a neural network to only guide say a missile towards enemy vehicles so it would look at a camera and determine whether the vehicle it's looking at is friendly or a foe and it all trained everything converged they thought things were great and then they started throwing it test pictures that it had never seen before and it was not doing so well and it turns <laughs> out they built a fantastic classifier for how cloudy it was no kidding because it's really hard to constrain what uh -huh. these end up picking out of their data set the training data set uh, so based on the light in the pictures it totally changes what the computer's focusing on yes yeah, so, i mean that was the most prevalent uh -huh. signal in all the pictures in its training data set was how bright it was and that correlated with friendly and foe for it wow that's unbelievable I mean, it's the same thing in physics, you know, where you can only solve problems with a massive set of assumptions, really. <laughs> right. <laughs> so. <laughs> well, I think that wraps up Fun Paper Friday. and That's so what we'll she said. 
So uh. we'll be back next week to talk about more map projections and with another fun paper that I don't know if it can beat this one for Shannon. I know. I know. <laughs> this is pretty much uh, the cream of the crop, so to speak. <laughs> A fun paper Fridays for me. That's absolutely true. <laughs> so Shannon, if somebody wants to send us some feedback, send us their best double entendre that's geology related <laughs> or has any kind of suggestions, how can they do that? Well, please send us your geology double entendres to show <laughs> at don'tpanicgeocast.com. You can find us on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman, and I am at Shannon Doolin. As always, please leave us an audio comment at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Right. We love playing those for you. And thanks for taking the time to review us in iTunes. It really helps other people find the show, and we're getting uh, a lot more people that are hearing about us. So thanks for spreading the word. And until next time, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers, 